Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we answer the question, what's the best part of financial planning? I mean, most people think, I think, they think about money as what can it buy me? What can it either buy me now or what could it buy me later in retirement, for example? But what I found is actually the best thing it can buy is financial freedom. The best I get from my money is money I'll never spend. The ability to take a pay cut to a better job or maybe retire at an early age, whatever it is you want to do. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, we've got a great guest. His name is Rob Berger. He's the founder of the Dough Roller blog and the host of the Dough Roller podcast. So here we have two like-minded podcast hosts chatting about personal finance. Here's our interview with Rob Berger. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. We start the program. Very easy question. You ready? Uh, Sure. Best career or money decision you've ever made? Uh, Leaving a law firm partnership. Now we're going to get into it, baby. (laughs) Okay. So, Rob, what's the origin story? You're from Ohio. I know that because I did a very quick, friendly interrogation before we got on the air. So you're from Ohio. You met your wife in undergrad or graduate? Undergrad. Met in undergrad. Then you went to law school. You both go to law school together? No, she, she's smarter than that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I only I went to law school. And then you start on the old law track. So right. you're, how was that? I enjoyed it, actually. It yeah? wasn't easy all the time. I worked at a big firm. Yeah. I was a litigation attorney, so mm-hmm. I was doing the 2,000 billable hours a year thing mm-hmm. and traveling a lot. Made partner in eight years, which I think is still kind of the track, but that was the track almost 25 years ago. Right. And uh, was partner for two years. It was great. And then I quit. Wait a minute. You were partner for two years. So you were only a lawyer for how long? So it was 10 years, eight years as an associate. Yep. I made partner. Yeah. How much did you make as a partner? I didn't quit law. Uh Uh-huh. I just, I changed to a different legal job. Okay. But how much you make as a partner in a fancy law firm at that time? That's a great question. I want to say, including bonus, it was around $300,000. What year is this we talking? That would have been 2000. I would have thought more. So at a law firm, the thing that people don't know is there are partners with yep. a small P. Right. And there are partners with a capital P. Ah. There are income. Well, they've kind of changed it now. Income a bit, and, and, and equity. equity. So there were certainly partners there making a million dollars a year yeah. or more. I was not one of them. But I, I got no complaints. Okay. So, yeah. then the, so you leave this fancy firm and then what happens? So I took a big pay cut. I wanted to do something different. So I went in-house. I was a, a sort of a technology litigation attorney. And so I went in in-house at a technology firm. Called AOL? Uh, no. actually, that was did some a good more, guess, right? That's a great guess. Northern Virginia. Right? Perfect, yeah. And we actually did work for AOL. But uh, it was um, KPMG Consulting, oh, okay. which later became Bearing Point, which later became bankrupt. But you were not there during the bankruptcy? No, no I left before So that. how was it working in-house versus being uh, a lawyer? I mean, you no longer have to deal with billable hours, but you're actually more of a manager when you're yeah. in-house, right? I don't think I was built for in-house work. Why not? It, because it, it was kind of a punch the clock kind of job. Hmm. And that's just not my personality. So 10 years at the firm, yep. how long at KPMG? Under three. And then what? I went to uh, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. That you know, sounds awesome. Do you know what that is? Yes, I know what it is, but you can tell everybody what they do. So they were created by the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. They're regulated or overseen by the SEC, and they regulate auditors of publicly traded companies. I was an attorney in the enforcement di- uh, division. And in terms of my legal career, it was by far the best job I'd ever had. You liked being a narc, huh? <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I like hearing from them. Ah, uh, okay. Yes, yes. I got you. Yeah. No, it was a great job. The people were terrific. Loved it. Ten years in the law firm, three years at KPMG. Right. Now you're... Yep, six then, years at the PCAOB. And then? 
I went back to Winston and Strawn. I just switched sides. I started defending the auditors that I was going after. You're very canny. Well, that's you sort come of... In as a, you, <laughs> ca- you came back in as a partner, as an equity or an income partner? I, neither. I came in as of counsel. Ah. Oh, yeah. oh. Which is kind of a quasi-partner. You get the big office. Eat what you kill. Well, yeah, that wasn't actually the arrangement. It was a, it was a salary. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I was not a partner. All right. So how long did you do that? I did it for a year or two full-time. Then I went part-time. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, I retired from law. Why? Because I could. Because you had that much <laughs> money? You'd saved all that money? I'd saved enough money. Did your wife work, by the way? She doesn't now. She didn't when we were raising our children. Uh-huh. She ended up getting a master's degree in education at uh-huh. GW. And for a while, when the kids were in high school and then in college, she did work part-time at an adoption agency. So you saved a lot of money. Saved a lot of money. And I also started a, a website, not for money. It was really just as a hobby. But it started, to my surprise, making money. So that helped too. And when did you start the website? I started it in 2007. Okay, so in 2007, that's... You should be an attorney. You are very good at this. Thank you very much. So Dough Roller began in 2007 as just like a fun side hustle? Or right. what, what was happening in your life? Why did you so, need to do that? that's a great you question. You were very busy. Two years earlier, I would kind of changed my thinking on finance. I decided I don't want to live the lawyer lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to live the, the debt-free, financial freedom lifestyle. That was more important to me and what kind of watch I was wearing or what kind of car I was driving or did I play golf at a public course or a private course. And so that started in 2005 and I sort of totally shifted our perspective. Rob Berger, you really started the fire movement, essentially. Well, I was certainly one of the early ones, although we didn't call it that. I I wasn't smart enough to come up with that. Really? uh, I know. I should have. Man. Mm -hmm. Damn it. 2005 is a huge part of the expansion. In other words, the economic expansion is going on. And so what is it about your personality that made you maybe able to sidestep the trap of getting caught up in the hoopla, in the acquisition phase of your life. I had an epiphany, and I don't even really know what triggered it. It was a couple of things. It was that I don't think many of us, I'll certainly myself for sure, we're not always good at really knowing what makes us happy. We Mm -hmm. think we do. We've sort of got this life that we lead, and we've got these routines, and presumably we've picked them because it's what makes us happy. Mm -hmm. And I I came to the conclusion that maybe, maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe what I think was making me happy isn't really making me happy. And the second epiphany was I have far more control over what makes me happy mm-hmm. than I think I believed before that. So, you know, it can be something simple in terms of daily routines. It could be something big like where you work. When I left the law firm for the first time, the biggest challenge wasn't the pay cut. It was that the ego challenge. I'm no longer a partner at a big firm at the big office. I'm some in-house counsel in a tiny office with no window. You know, but then what I found out was, you know, it turns out that big office with the window didn't, didn't really make me happy. It was just a big office, a.k.a. a cell, <laughs> and you were <laughs> trapped in it. It was, was a, a nice cell. Very nice jail cell. Exactly. So all of that kind of came together in 2005, and I started making some changes. Now it's 2007. Talk about establishing Doe Roller and what prompted you to do that? Yeah, so I told my wife I'm bored with practicing law. Even though I love the job, it's kind of tedious. And she said, get a hobby. So I decided to become a woodworker. What did you make? I made a workbench. Oh, my I've since gosh. given it away. But it was... I, you were pretty good? You, not really. But it, it didn't fall apart. Mark's father is quite excellent. I went into his apartment. I'm like, that's such a nice bench. He goes, oh, my father made it. I'm oh, like, yeah. oh, man, that's nice. That was definitely not me. Okay. So, so I'm doing this, and I thought, I need tools. That's the best part about being a woodworker. So I'm searching the internet for a table saw, and I stumble across a personal finance blog. 
And it was the first time I'd seen a website that I identified as something that just one person was doing okay. and telling their story. And I thought, that's what I need. I don't need to lose a hand or a finger with a table saw. I need to start a personal... Fi- I love technology. I was mm-hmm. doing a lot of technology litigation. And I'd become sort of a personal finance nerd. Uh, this is perfect. So I gave up on the the woodworking fame and fortune yeah. and started Dough Roller. And what about this world of personal finance just hooked you in? Well, I love the numbers part of it. I'm sort of a numbers guy. So I love the numbers. And I like the the freedom, if we know what we're doing with our money, the freedom that it buys us. I mean, most people think, I think, they think about money as what can it buy me? What can it either buy me now or what could it buy me later in retirement, for example? It's, it's always, it's gonna, you're going to spend it. That's what the purpose of money is. But what I've found is actually the best thing it can buy is financial freedom. The best I get from my money is money I'll never spend. Hopefully I won't spend it. Peace of mind. It, yeah, and the ability to take a pay cut to a better job or to eventually maybe retire at an early age, whatever it is you want to do. So you're doing this website. Yeah. It's 2005, six, seven. Seven. Yeah. All right, it's seven. Yep. What's your feeling about like what that fulfills for you in your life? Because that's sort of like the classic side hustle. Do something fun yeah. that intrigues you and then tell us how it becomes a moneymaker and what happens yeah. next. So when I started it, it was just purely a hobby. I was up literally seven days a week at 5 a.m. I'd work from five to seven. Of course, when I had to work on the, during the week, I would be on the subway, I'd work on the subway, work at lunch. And at that point, it wasn't thinking money. I was just thinking, this is kind of a fun thing to do. But then, you know, you meet other bloggers, you start to study the space, you, you realize you can make money from a website. It's sort of obvious today, mm-hmm. but in 07, at least for me, it wasn't obvious. And you learn how to get traffic to your site. And, you know, you start making some money and it's literally you know, maybe a buck a day. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you're, you're not making anything. But then you hear that other people are making a full-time living. And you think, well, how in the world do they do that? And you just keep learning. And the years go by, and it does a little better, and it does a little better. And then you're on the Jill on Money show in New York City. I don't know. It just That's how it happened. Unbelievable. It's just like that. My just, God. It was the, it was, I, was an, I was an overnight success. It took me 13, 12, 13 years. Okay. So you build this thing up, and then you've monetized it. You launch a podcast. Yeah, that was in 2013. Okay. And then why'd you sell this thing? So I'd been running it for 11 years, and I wasn't looking to sell. A company reached out to me, and then a second company reached out to me, and then they started bidding against each other. And then it got to a number where it just made sense. It was a company that I thought was going to continue to do good things with the site. They had purchased a site uh, from a blogger that I know very well, so I, I could talk to him and get his sense of the company. They were going to uh, let me continue to do the podcast, which was important to me. But in some ways, I sold it for the same reason I left the law partnership. It's like, you know, we've got one life to live and I want to do different things. It allowed me to write my book. Uh, it allowed me to do some work for Forbes, which I enjoy. And, you know, all of that's going to allow me to do some other things that I want to do down the road. This is Jill on Money. Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst and host of this, the Jill on Money podcast. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Recently, Marcus' personal loans were rated number one for personal loan customer satisfaction by J.D. Power. How did they get that number one rating? Because they put customers first. With a Marcus personal loan, you can choose your loan amount, your monthly payment, and payment date. Also, there are no fees. That means no worrying about late fees or sign-up fees. Even better, their loan specialists are available to help you on the phone. If you're looking to consolidate high-interest debt, 
pay off credit cards, or make a major purchase, check out Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Go to marcus.com forward slash Jill. You can money. For J.D. Power 2019 award information, go to jdpower.com slash awards. And now back to our interview with Rob Berger. What about investing is exciting to you? What do you? What kind of investing do you recommend for your listeners and readers? So uh, I'm very much uh, an index fund, low fee, more or less what I follow. About 15% of my personal portfolio is in individual stocks. Really? And Why is that? Because I just don't, I don't know what I'm doing and I made that decision. No, I, I enjoy, so it's not a big portfolio. It's only a handful of stocks and I enjoy following the companies. You know, I, I bought Berkshire years ago for the main reason I wanted to go to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting before Warren and Charlie retired. Die. Well, I was going to say retired, but yes, die. die. Yeah. And, and and I took my family and we've gone a couple of times. Wonderful experience. Okay. And I think I have the temperament to invest in individual stocks. And all, all, all I mean by that is I look at fundamentals. I'm not looking at technical analysis and I am fine holding it for a very long time, notwithstanding a lot of price fluctuation. But you do think index funds are the, the best way to go for the vast majority of people, including myself. Again, our 85% of our portfolio is in index funds. How do you pick your individual stocks? I'm basically a value in, uh, investor, and I'm looking for companies that I think would be doing just well 10 years from now or 20 years from now, which is a very hard thing to do, but it keeps me away from the IPOs, the, the high-tech, you know, fast flyers kind of companies. I'm looking for well-established companies. So I invested in Apple years ago before they split when they had a, I'll use air quotes, a bad quarter. Yeah. And it freaked everyone out and their stock went from 700 to like three something. To me, that's an easy decision. Is that the best stock you've bought in terms of performance? Uh, probably. I bought a couple of banks a year, a little over a year ago that have done well. And that was mainly, you know, they're selling at or below book value. They're paying a good dividend. The banks have never been healthier than they are now. So it just seemed like a good long-term investment. And they've had their ups and downs, but they're doing pretty well. So what is it that you think is intriguing by this personal finance thing? Are you just an altruistic dude? I mean, you want to help people out or is it that you feel like you have a different kind of a voice? So it's a couple of things. Um, certainly I do want to help people. And that's what was the podcast. It was something that I, I really didn't monetize. I don't own it now, but I still produce the show. And it was where I really got to connect with people. The blog, I didn't really, you didn't really connect. Occasionally you get an email, but it was the podcast where I, I really connected with folks. And I go to conferences now and they come to the conferences and I get to meet them and we have meetups from time to time. So that's, I, I enjoy that very much, but I also love the idea of trying to build a business. So in that sense, it's, it's about me, I guess, if you will. It's, it's, you know, it's trying to cover both bases, help people with a business that can sustain you. So what do you sense is the big challenge out there? Give me a few of the hot topics that your listeners are asking you about. Yeah. So uh, one of them is financial priorities. How do you figure out, do I pay off my student loans as fast as I can? What about the credit card debt I have? Do I invest? Figuring out where their next dollar should go is a big issue. And it comes up, you know, should I pay my mortgage off early? I mean, it comes up in countless ways. So that's one big topic that I hear a lot. Uh, the other one on investing, people, when I start to talk about expense ratios, like I'll ask someone, so do you invest in your 401k? Sure do. What do you invest in? You know, I'm not really sure. I, there's a couple mutual funds. Well, what, are, what do they cost? What do you mean? <laughs> you know, you have that kind of conversation. And then when you show them, you know, even 25 basis points 
over a lifetime of investing is a huge number. Uh, you, you could be talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, certainly at 50 basis points or 1%. That's eye-opening for most people. Uh, and that's what one of the things we talk about on the podcast and I talk about in the book. And then compounding. I mean, people conceptually kind of think, I, I get compounding at some level. They understand interest on interest. Or, uh, but when you start to actually dive into the numbers, you know, you're going to save 200 a month. That's great. Do you have any idea what would happen if you save 225 instead over a lifetime? Would that make a big difference? Our minds, mine included, we can't grasp the power of compounding mm. because it starts to snowball in ways that, that it's unpredictable. Well, it's predictable, but our minds just don't seem to grasp that. Yeah, sort of like a 3D concept, and we are somewhat more linear yeah. in our thinking, many yeah. of us. Yeah. So what is it about personal finance that's hard for you? Like, what are the, what are the topics that you're like, mm, I don't get that, or I'd like to know more about blank. What are, what are those? There are certain topics that I more or less avoid. Like? Complex insurance products. I mean, I know enough to know that for the vast majority of people, there may be some exceptions. You should stay away from them. And I've literally gotten the contracts, and dense as they are, and lawyer as I am, and I start to read them, and I think there's no one on earth that understands this thing. Agreed. So, but I don't, I don't feel a need to dive in and truly understand complex uh, insurance products. I know enough to know the kinds of decisions we should be making. Mm -hmm. I stay away from that. You know, I'm not much, I'm not into day trading. I'm not into swing trading. I'm trading. I'm not into momentum investing. I understand what they are. Risk parity models. I understand it. But do I dive into it? No. Uh, I just don't think it's necessary. What about like some of the issues around, say, estate planning? Completely Uh, comfortable with that? Because you're a lawyer. You did that probably a hundred years ago in law school. It took maybe one class. Yeah. So when someone asked me to write a will for them, I've only written, I've only helped one person with a will, and it was a Marine heading off uh, to, to a tour of duty. I am not a trust and estates lawyer. I have one. Mm-hmm. So I'll send them to her. She's terrific. Yeah. Again, I know enough to know here are the things generally you need to do. But that's a very specialized area of the law. You know, it's funny because I believe that no one person, no host, no writer can know everything. Yeah. And so tell me who you think is, who's your audience? Like if somebody, if you said you wanted to describe the kind of folks who come to Dough Roller are what? Yeah. So I think of that in terms of the folks that listen to the podcast, yeah. right? This is going to sound like a cop-out, but it's a real wide range of people. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of professionals, a lot of doctors, but then I, you know, I have teachers, I have folks, I have teenagers, I have high school students email mm-hmm. me or college students email me and with questions. So, you know, it's a pretty diverse group. It's not, you know, I've had advertisers ask me that. What's your demographic? I, I don't know. Well, it, I hard- will say it is, it is by and large people that aren't afraid to try to learn something that they might not understand and make some decisions for themselves about their money. Doesn't mean they won't hire an advisor. They might, mm-hmm. but on the spectrum, they lean towards do-it-yourself. So you, you mentioned earlier that you have some plans for the future. Yeah. What are those? So a couple of things. I want to keep writing books. Right. I will probably start another website. Topic? Of personal finance and investing. Don't you have a non-compete? I do. How, when's that up? Uh, next year. Oh, so I can look forward to 2020? 2020. Don't know what I'm going to do exactly yet. Have a couple ideas. I want to be a writer for it. Give me a be holler. Really? Sure, why not? That'd be great. I like you. You seem like a neat, nice guy. That'd be wonderful. All right. Yeah. And I want to start, I probably want to start some other podcasts maybe. And I definitely want to do a lot of video. Really? Yes. You got that cool she gray said, really? white really? She's like, Rob, I'm looking at you. I'm no, not sure video the is gray. the way you want to go. Well, I mean, video because you want to monetize it and that's where ad dollars well, go. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, monet, monetizing, sure, but it's secondary. So why video? Because, one, I enjoy it. Two, I think a lot of, you can really communicate a lot of important things about finance visually that you can't, you know, in a podcast or in written word. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm interested. Have you ever come to FinCon? No. I've been invited. You should speak. You'd be wonderful. Well, then, you know, you want to hook me up, get me I can put you in touch up. with the founder. You and I, I feel like we'll have a nice, lengthy relationship. That would be great. All right. Now, listen, I got some things to do here. You ready? Uh, I guess so. Before we let you go, Rob Berger, remember the book is called A Retire Before Mom and Dad, The Simple Numbers Behind a Lifetime of Financial Freedom. Who publishes this? I did. Oh, it's self-published. It is. Mark, did we not get this book before? Never, he says. I thought I sent it to you, but you know my, my bad. Yeah. I guess I wanted to keep you in suspense. I'm sorry. It's all right. Before we go, we started the podcast with a question, your best career or money decision. What's the worst? There were a couple, but I would say joining the country club was probably the, the worst financial decision I made. That was just stupid. You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it is time for the Marcus Minute. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. In the hot seat today, Rob Berger. He's the mastermind behind doughroller.net. He's also written a new book, Retire Before Mom and Dad. Okay, you ready to play? I guess so. Here we go. These are very simple, straightforward answers. Let's go. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Honest. What's always worth spending on? Freedom. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? A country club. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? I wouldn't change a thing. How much do you spend on a haircut? $35, but that includes a $10 tip. It's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What would you do with it? Nothing. I'd just spend the day with my wife and family. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to Rob Berger for joining us. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to go on to his podcast, Dough Roller. Check it out. We'll let you know when that happens. You can subscribe to the Jill on Money podcast anywhere you get your favorite pods. Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, wherever. We drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, sometimes a little bonus as well. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.